This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. And we're picking up where, where Joey left off last week. After he pointed us to the worthiness of Christ and how Christ is worthy of everything that we have, of our relationships, of our obedience. Uh, he's worthy of, of all. And then we're picking up now as the gospel is continuing to advance. And before we get into the text, I, I want you to think about this. Ask yourself, how did you come to faith in Christ? If you're a believer here with us this morning, what, would, what is your testimony? When somebody says, hey, tell me how you came to salvation, think through what happened. We all have our own unique experiences with that. This morning, I'm going to share with you my testimony. I was a kid raised in church by a mother who grew up in church and by a father who did not. And so church life was, was always a, a part of our family. I was disobedient to my mom, like all kids are, right? I was seven years old, and my mom had told me something to do, and my dad said, hey, look, when, and I didn't do it. My dad said, hey, when your mother tells you what to do, you should honor her and you, you do it. You be obedient. Later on that day, she told me to do something and I didn't do it. So my dad sat me down in the kitchen. I'll, I'll, I remember it. I have a weird memory of things from my childhood. Natalie always talks about this. Like I remember life experiences like my second grade teacher talking about leadership. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I just incorporated that for the rest of my life. Well, this is one of those moments in my life. I remember sitting in the apartment. We were in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, and we lived on, on base. And I was sitting in the apartment in the kitchen. Uh, we had this little stool facing the sink where I couldn't see my brothers. Uh, I had to face this way. And my dad had his Bible. And he said, here, sit down. And I want you to memorize Ephesians 6, chapter 1. Anybody know that? Has anybody else had to memorize that before? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's my first memory verse as a kid. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I had to read over that over and over and over again. And of course, initially, I started off like any kid would who's in punishment. Let me get this done so I can go play, right? So I started reading it and memorizing it. And having grown up in church... I had heard the, the communication of the gospel, and I had heard about how everyone is in sin and how everybody needs a Savior. And I'm reading this, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to realize, hey, you're a sinner because you're not obeying your mother. For a seven-year-old kid, there's this anxiety that's welling up, whatever a seven-year-old could feel, you know. But I'm starting to realize, whoa, 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 all this stuff is true. All this stuff that they're talking about, that has to do with me. And so my dad comes in about 15 minutes later, and of course I, I quote the verse to him. It says, okay, you can go play. So I go to my room, and I was one of those kids at this stage, I was playing with like cars and stuff. Uh, I, I eventually graduated to like action figures, but I was still playing, in the, I was in the car phase. And so I'm like half-heartedly playing with my cars, and I'm just like thinking about all this stuff that I just experienced. Like, what does that mean for me? Am I going to hell? Like, a, all this stuff that they've talked about in church, I, I'm starting to question some things. Later that week, we had a family night. We were one of those lame families that plays Bible Trivial Pursuit instead of the regular, regular Trivial Pursuit. And so Bible Trivial Pursuit, and we're, they're asking those questions, and I'm answering them, but this whole time, I'm like, man, I've still got some real questions. And so I started asking my dad, right there across the kitchen table, 
these questions that I had been having about, hey, if, if I'm disobedient to you and mom, what does that mean as far as me going to hell? You can imagine a young father hearing that from a seven-year-old son. I'm sure he didn't know what to say to that. And so he started talking to me about, why are you asking this type of question? And so I got to share a little bit more. He said, hey, look, let's, let's go to church and let's go ask the pastor. Now, the, the military base had this large church. And I knew what that meant. As a seven-year-old kid, that meant in my church, I had to walk down the aisle and go talk to the pastor. That's the way they did it. We don't do that here, by the way. We're not ever going to ask you to walk down the aisle in front of everybody and then come talk to somebody and in a moment make a, a prayer decision and then that's it for you. If that ever happens to you where you come to that same realization, we encourage you to reach out to one of our pastors so we can spend time with you outside of this place and we can just talk and, and figure out what's going on with you. But I knew what that meant for me. Thankfully, my pastor did not do that. When I walked down the aisle with my dad, and I was trembling. I mean, my dad was like, hey, you ready? I'm like, we walk down the aisle, and the pastor says, okay, I'm going to pray with you guys, but let's set up a follow-up. I want to spend time with you. A week later, the gospel was presented to me by this pastor. See, I had come to the realization that I was a sinner. Even if it just meant for me being disobedient. Look, for some of us, our sins in the world's eyes are a lot uglier than that. But in light of the holiness of God, we were on level playing field. That we were all opposed to God. That we had all rebelled against Him. And that the wages of our sin, disobedient to our parents, addicted to drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, whatever your ugliness of sin is, the wages of that was death. And I came to that realization we all have our own unique experiences when it comes to how God worked salvation in our lives. But all of us have some similar components. We have all walked a similar road of salvation. We've all seen going, coming, telling, and believing. And we will see those four components play out in our text this morning in Acts chapter 8, as Philip gets to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. So look with me now in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, and read along with me. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning. I'm asking you by the power of your spirit to speak through me. To magnify Christ in this scripture. Father, for those who are believers, Father, I pray that that you would renew the joy of their salvation this morning. And for those who have not trusted in you, Father, that are here possibly searching like this eunuch, I pray that you draw them to yourself. That you open up their eyes, their ears, and their hearts to receive your Son, Jesus, as their Lord and as their Savior. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. First component on this road of salvation that we see is going. If you look at verses 26 through the first part of 27, we're introduced to Philip. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Philip. If you remember, Philip was uh, introduced in chapter 6. Whenever the apostles were really busy and the widows were being neglected in the daily service, They ended up finding seven men of good repute, one of which was Stephen, who we saw stoned already, persecuted for his faith. Philip was another one of those guys. In chapter 7, as a result of the persecution, as a result of the stoning of of Stephen, and everyone scattered, Philip is found in Samaria, and he preaches the gospel in Samaria. He has gone from servant to evangelists. And so he's well known now in our day as Philip the evangelist because that's what he eventually became. Here in chapter 8, we see a command given to him by God that says, rise and go. Now for those who are involved with our student ministry, whether you're a student or whether you're one of the volunteers, that should sound familiar to you because it sounds like the call that God gave to quite possibly the worst missionary of all time, Jonah. If you turn back to Jonah, look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 1, and you see this call that God gave to him. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Like Jonah, Philip was led by God to go somewhere very specific. He was to go to the road to Gaza. 
Now, Gaza was an old Philistine city on the Mediterranean coast. As you are leaving on your way out of the region to go into Africa, you're going to go through Gaza. There were two roads to get to Gaza from Jerusalem. There was one that would take you along the coast of the Mediterranean. But that's not where God sent Philip. He sent him the more inconvenient route to go across what Luke describes as a desert place. This was a desert road to go to Gaza for a specific purpose. It wouldn't make much sense. This is the the road less traveled if you're going to go there. But God said, hey, I need you to go there and go down that road. Does that remind you of anybody from John's gospel? Think about Jesus and the woman at the well. Where Jesus goes to the well in the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day, that no one goes to the well in the middle in the hottest part of the day. Except for that one woman. Because she knew that no one would be there. This woman who, who had a bad reputation who was a friend of of many men and would be talked bad about by the women in her her city. So she would go in the hottest part of the day to avoid all contact, to avoid judgment. That's where she finds Jesus, sitting there. He had sent off the disciples, hey, go get some food, and I'm going to wait here, because he had a divine appointment with this lady. It's the same kind of divine appointment that we're going to see Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch have. God has sent him for a very specific purpose to a very specific person. And unlike Jonah, who originally fled from the command of God, who who says he tried to flee from the presence of God, and of course we know how that ended up. Philip obeys and he goes. The implication here is that the road of salvation bears those who are going. And you see, when we, when we think about our testimony, when we think about how we came to faith, sometimes we don't get to pick this up. Some of you may. Some of you may know, man, the person that led me to faith, I know their story too. But a lot of us, our, our experience is, is limiting our perspective. See, there's always been someone going. And it started with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ went, when he came to us, sent by God. And then Jesus would send out the apostles, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, but know that I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. And then those apostles would, would make disciples and then they would keep spreading. And we've seen that. That's the theme of this, this acts of the apostles is that the gospel keeps advancing despite opposition. The gospel message that has arrived here today has traveled across space and time throughout generation, throughout continents. On the road of salvation, there's always one going. And just as Christ was sent to begin his work of salvation, just as Philip was sent by God to this specific road, God sent someone specifically to you to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that God loves you. I want to remind you of that. That it isn't by chance that you came to faith. It is by God's sovereignty where He sought you out and He sent someone to communicate the gospel to you. His Holy Spirit opened up 
your eyes, open up your heart to receive that gospel and believe it. He loves you. He knows you. He sees you this morning. And that should produce in you some humility. Because if you know, if you come to the realization that you're a sinner, you know that you have received that by grace, that you have not earned that, that there is nothing in us naturally that deserves God's salvation. And I hope that produces in you joy. I hope that results in a heart overflowing with worship and thankfulness for what God has done because He sent someone for you. Another implication is that we are sent. I like the way Blake says this from time to time, that Christianity is not a a come and see religion. It's a go and tell. We, as the church, are sent. We see that in the Great Commission. As Jesus said, go, therefore, all authority has been given to me. And now I command you to go and make disciples. We saw that at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, hey, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to go and you're going to make disciples. Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that has carried on today. We are calling this the Mission of God series because that's what we see in Acts, how God is continuing to carry out His mission. And here today, we are a part of that mission. We are the goers on the road of salvation. So wherever you are right now, your school, your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, your, your workout area, your gym, your circle of friends, wherever you are, you are there for a reason. You are sent to continue carrying out the mission of God that started with Jesus Christ being the first goer on that road. The second component that we see on the road of salvation is coming. Starting in verse 27, we're introduced to the Ethiopian eunuch. He's described first as the Ethiopian. He's African. Now, quite possibly, this term Ethiopian was actually referring to the whole region of Africa. He's also described as a eunuch. A eunuch is a man who was castrated. What that means is, I'm going to get a little graphic here, forgive me, but a man whose testicles were removed. And it was done so that he would be of more benefit to the kingdom that he served in. That he would not be tempted sexually. More times than not, it was done when this, when this boy, prior to going through puberty, would experience this. Hey, well, you've got a bright future here. He's also described as a court official of Candace. Candace was kind of like a term like Caesar or Pharaoh. This is not a specific person, but this is the, a term used for the queen of Africa. They don't mention the king here because the king was thought of as a divine being. And he didn't, he didn't mess around with the day-to-day stuff with human beings. The queen was the one that was responsible for the, the whole kingdom. This man was a court official. And it says he was in charge of all of her treasure. 
What this is, is is similar to our position as a secretary of treasury in our nation. He was a high-ranking official. He was wealthy, he was powerful, and he was in a pagan civilization. But somehow, this man had come into contact with the God of Israel. Because what we also see is that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. That means he was a God-fearer. And he, had, he had been introduced to the God of Israel and he desired to worship that God. Not only in religious acts, though, we see this man seeking for God in Scripture. Luke informs us that, that the Ethiopian was returning home from his journey and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. The fact that a eunuch was leaving Jerusalem and reading the prophet Isaiah is significant. Because you see, despite his best intentions, this man would never be fully ingratiated. He would never be fully a part of the Jewish religion. Part of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23 Verse 1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You see, this eunuch, because of his condition, he got to go to Jerusalem, but he would never get to enter the temple. He would never get to be a part of the assembly. But in Isaiah, the eunuch finds hope. In Isaiah chapter 56 there was a specific promise given for a man just as this. Starting in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer." Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see the hope that the eunuch finds in the prophet Isaiah? In order for him to get this scroll, he would have had to pay a lot of money. But for him it was worth it. He had just come and probably done this many times in his life. He had gone to Jerusalem not being able to participate because of his condition, being those who were excluded, being the outcast, not being able to come into the walls, the house of prayer. And the prophet Isaiah says, but to that eunuch, 
I will make a monument and a name for you greater than sons and daughters. That my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. So we find a man searching in his heart for God. He's searching. He is coming on this road of salvation. See, there is a coming that is required. When we're dealing with salvation, man must come to God. There's a problem there, though. Because as we see throughout Scripture, naturally, man does not do that. Man is incapable of that. But just as God makes the initial action in the going, God makes the initial action in the coming. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, where he's quoting Old Testament. He says, no one seeks after God. Jesus talks about, that, talks about this in John's gospel as it's recorded, where Jesus starts off, and he says in chapter 14, he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Earlier on in John's gospel, he said, but no one comes to me unless what? The Father draws him. Believers, your coming to God was preceded by God drawing you to himself. God did something in your heart that caused you to desire, that awakened your soul to long to be reconciled to your creator. And then you followed and you came to him. If you have not trusted in Christ this morning, I'll ask you this. Are you like the eunuch? Are you searching right now? Are you looking for God? Are you looking for answers? That man, that Ethiopian eunuch, did not find his hope in a place where people gathered to worship. And I'm going to say the same thing to you. You're not going to find your hope in this building, a place where people gather to worship. The Ethiopian eunuch found his hope in the Scriptures, specifically the Scriptures pointing to the work of Christ, the suffering servant. So if God has awakened your heart and your mind to desire Him, draw near to Him. Come to Him. Search for Him in the Scriptures. Look for Jesus Christ. And in your searching, you will find him, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. You see, what, what the Ethiopian eunuch would have read in, in Isaiah 56, what he didn't know is that was about to become a reality for him that day. That he was going to get to be a part of the family. That he, would, who was once far off, would be taken in. The next component on the road of salvation is telling Starting in verse 29, we see that the Spirit leads Philip to this wealthy man's chariot. Now, it only talks about the chariot, but a man of his stature would not just be riding around by himself. He more than likely had a caravan. He for sure was not the one holding the reins. Because what do we see him doing? He's chilling in the back, reading the scroll, right? Spirit tells Philip, hey, Go bust up in there. That caravan, that chariot, I need you to go there. 
And so Philip runs. I'm not going to make a bigger thing about that than what it it really is. More than likely, he had to run to catch up. It's not like, I'm so zealous that I'm going to go run now after this. But Philip runs, and he catches up, and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he starts the conversation with a simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? And I love the response because you get to see a real-life illustration of a theological statement later on in Scripture. What does he say? How can I understand unless someone guides me? Turn to Romans chapter 10. We're talking about the component of telling on the road of salvation and why that's so important. Paul talks about this in chapter 10. Starting in verse 13, he gives the good news. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And he follows that with, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone telling? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Telling is an essential component on this road of salvation. One must tell of the good news of Jesus Christ in order for one to hear that good news and then believe that good news. If you've gone through our new members class, You've heard this illustration. Our students have heard this illustration, but I'll do it one more time so this is clear. I've actually shared it with the whole church before. It's not enough to just know that something is true, but you have to believe it. That's true saving faith, right? But you can't believe something that you've never heard of. I use this illustration. If I'm from a remote village, let's say in South America, and there are no thing, there's no such thing as a chair, okay? And I've, gotten, I've received the trip of a lifetime to come here to Sulphur, Louisiana, and I'm coming into your home as a visitor. Here we show Southern hospitality. So the first thing you're going to do after you offer me a glass of sweet tea is offer me a seat. Now understand this, I don't know what that means. In my village, we just sit on the ground. You're offering me a chair. So the first thing you're going to have to do is explain to me what a chair is. I'm not going to be able to sit in a chair unless I know what it is. I can't believe in what I have not heard. I have to have the information. And then you may demonstrate to me what it looks like to sit in a chair. So you sit down. And when you're sitting down, I see that you're being suspended midair. You are defying gravity. I don't know how to explain it, but I can't argue against the reality of its truth. But does that do me any good? I'm still standing. It isn't until I personally trust that that chair is going to hold me up where I trust in it. True saving faith is displayed and not us first having the information and acknowledging it to be true, but then trusting in that truth for us. So when we think about the cross, we have to have the information. 
That's what this eunuch is saying. Is how, how am I supposed to understand this if no one guides me? We need the Word of God proclaimed. We need the Gospel communicated. And church, we're the ones that are responsible for doing that. Relationships are good. But unless you ever verbally communicate the Gospel in that relationship, that person is still condemned in your life. They can see it. There's that quote, that so often uh, it's given to St. Francis of Assisi, but he actually never said this. So discredit, discrediting him. But there's that quote that preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. While it is true that faith without works is dead and that works should come out of the faith that we have in Christ, that is false. The gospel has to be communicated in words. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Telling is an essential component on the road of salvation. And the content of our telling is also important. Notice in our passage what Philip did when he opened his mouth. He told the eunuch about Jesus. And he did it from the Scriptures. See, our testimonies are powerful. I share with you my testimony this morning. Those are good illustrations. Those are visual representations of a spiritual reality, something that you can identify with. But my testimony in and of itself is not going to lead one to salvation. You have to go into the Scriptures. Our telling must be centered on the Word of God. And it must be centered on Jesus Christ presented in the Word of God. Our telling should not be centered on the doctrines of grace. They should be centered on the Jesus Christ of grace. Our, our telling should not be centered on the consequences of sin, but on Christ who bore those consequences, who became our sin. If you're one of those who's really into apologetics, don't use Scripture to be right and win an argument for the sake of being right. But instead, you should be using the Scriptures to point someone to Christ. It is true, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter, we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason of the hope that we have in us. We are the tellers. At one point, someone came to us. Someone was sent. They were the goers. We drew near to God when He started drawing us closer to Himself. And now that we have received salvation, we are the tellers. I would ask you, are you able to take the Word of God and point someone to Jesus? Now, it might be, it's a lot easier for us today. I want you to understand that. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hadn't been written yet. But what we see is the perfect passage of Scripture that this man was wrestling with. In Isaiah 53, where Philip says, Oh man, it couldn't be any easier than that. The next component is believing. See, as they continued down this road, they came to a, a rare body of water. I don't think that's as significant as what someone might make it out to be. 
I don't think it's like, oh, all of a sudden water showed up in the desert. I think there was water along the road. And the eunuch responded in belief of the good news and then responded and said, hey, what prevents me from being baptized, Philip? Now, most of your Bibles will then jump from verse 36 to 38. And if you do have verse 37, it's going to say something like this. Philip said, hey, you've got to believe. And the, the eunuch responded and he said, I do believe. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. If it's not there, more than likely it's in a footnote at the bottom. And the reason it's there is because that wasn't there in the original manuscripts. The earliest ones didn't have that. More than likely what happened is someone, they had to explain what would eventually happen. What, okay, so there's this gap, right? Is What prevents me from being baptized? And then he's being baptized. The evidence of his faith is displayed in the fact that he was baptized. That's the model that we see in the New Testament is you come to faith, you express faith in Christ, and you follow that in believer's baptism. And so Philip, having communicated the gospel to this man, and this man responding in faith, responding in belief, trust in, in the work of Christ for salvation, then says, nothing. Let's go down to the water, brother. Let's go. You're getting baptized today. It's an important pattern for us to point out. We talked about this in our new members class this morning. Baptism is important. Now, baptism does not save you. It's a symbol of our unity with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a symbol of the spiritual reality that has already occurred in our hearts, in our souls. It is a way for us to confess and profess our faith visually. Following his trust in Christ for salvation, the Ethiopian eunuch so strongly desired to do that, that he stops, he commands the chariot, hey, stop right here. And they go down, and they're ba- he's baptized. I want you to see something here. The overall theme of Acts, that the gospel advances despite opposition, we see that pop up again here. I love that Philip gets to be a part of this. Because Philip at first, where do we see him? He's serving widows. The next time we see him, the gospel is breaking down barriers in Samaria, those half-breeds, those those who aren't really Jews. Next time we see him, he's preaching the gospel to an Ethiopian, to an African man, a Gentile. The gospel continues to break down those barriers that man has put up. Racial barriers are broken down in the conversion of this black man. A eunuch, physical barriers. One who would never be able to, be, to experience the God of Judaism is now adopted into the family of God. Religious barriers. A pagan is now coming to Jesus Christ. And then we have the socioeconomic factor. This wealthy man, high-ranking official, powerful, is now a part of the same body as the widow, as the poor lady. The implication here, if you have not trusted in Christ, it's pretty simple. Belief. Belief. 
Again, not in the sense of acknowledging something, a historical reality to be true, but trusting in that historical reality for salvation. Trusting that the work of Christ was done on behalf of you. That Jesus, in his death and resurrection, accomplished your salvation to free you from your bondage, to reconcile you to your God, to restore you to your Creator. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Believe. Another implication is to be baptized. If you've believed and have not followed that belief, with believer's baptism. What I'm saying here is if you were christened as a child, or if you were baptized as a young person, as a child or a youth, and then came to faith later on, the model that we see in the New Testament church is that you should follow that, believer, that faith in baptism. It is publicly confessing that you are submitting your life to following Jesus no matter what the cost. And so what the church gets to do is the church gets to hold you accountable to that, and the church gets to encourage you and build you up. The church is responsible for you and taking care of you and discipling you. And it's also good for the church. Because see, as the church gets to celebrate in that and participate in that, we are reminded of the grace that we've been given. We are reminded of the unity that we have with Jesus as he died, was buried, and was resurrected. We get to celebrate with you because that's happened in us as well. So I would encourage you to follow that and be obedient to that practice that we see. And then lastly, rejoice. Rejoice. What we see with this Ethiopian eunuch in verse 39 is, is he walks away rejoicing. He goes home and he's, he's joyful for what's just occurred. You too were once without hope. And you found your hope in Christ. So don't let the trials of this world steal your joy from you. Because the joy of Christ will endure through all of those things. It's unconquerable. The work of Christ is done. It is complete. There's one last step on this road. I didn't mention it at the beginning because I want to make sure we saw the going, the coming, the telling, where the going and coming collide, and the believing. But it doesn't stop there. Because the last component is the repeating. In verse 39, we see Philip, he does this incredible thing and he teleports, right? The Holy Spirit carries him away. By the way, this ends like a six-year argument between me and my wife. Teleportation is possible um, by God only. Um, but it is possible. So for those of you who, are about, who experience late Charles traffic, but we see Philip just kind of gets carried off. The Ethiopian eunuch, I don't know what his, I, it, if Luke doesn't record his response, I would have been like, did this really happen? Is this real? But all it says is he didn't see him anymore and he went home rejoicing. But that's what he did is he went home and the early church historians would track this guy and they would say he would go on to become a missionary in Africa. 
Disciples are going to be made where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is continuing to advance. It's picking up traction. It's, it's no longer people being added, but now they're being multiplied to the kingdom. What do we see with Philip? Is Philip is in Azotus. I guess when he comes to, he, he finds himself here. It's just north on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean, just north of Gaza. And he, it says he's going to end up working his way all the way up to Caesarea, where he eventually plants. That's where he eventually stops. We find him later on in Acts chapter 21, and he's married. He's got kids. That's where he ended up staying. But as he would go through each city, what did he do? He's still going. He's still telling. He's preaching the gospel throughout all the cities. See, disciples make disciples. And that is the passion of our church. We want to equip you so that you can make disciples. So that people aren't added in sulfur, but that people are being multiplied. So that we, we aren't adding people in southwest Louisiana, but multiplication is happening where disciples are making disciples who make disciples. We're continuing this mission of God that started with Jesus and has carried out through all, all, all these generations and is now here today, and we want to do that. Disciples make disciples. To wrap up, if you haven't trusted in Christ, this is what I want you to hear this morning. If you're here searching, you're not going to find hope here in this building, and you're not going to find hope in people in this building. All I can do is point you to Scripture and point you to Jesus Christ. That Jesus, He was the original goer. That He came and He died. He paid the penalty of sin. And if you believe that, you will experience the same joyful salvation that this Ethiopian man experienced. Call on the name of the Lord. Seek Him and you will find Him. Believe and find joy. And for those of you believers, I want you to remember that God pursued you on the road that you were on. Embrace that reality. Allow the love of God to be made known in your heart. And let that produce in you joy, overflowing. Also go. Go from this place. Go where God leads you. To that coworker who's seeking. To that classmate who has questions. To that family member who longs for some hope. Go to them. And tell them about Jesus. Tell them the good news. Just open your mouth and communicate the Jesus of Scripture. And may God grant faith to those who hear those words proclaimed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are grateful this morning for your pursuit of us. Thank you for sending someone to communicate the gospel. But Father, even more than that, thank you for sending your Son to start this work. Jesus, we thank you for your submission to the will of your Father. We thank you that, that you became that man of sorrows that we sang about this morning, that man who is acquainted with grief, who is pierced for our transgressions, 
who's crushed for our iniquities, who is rejected by men. Jesus, we praise you this morning. And Father, we ask that you open up our eyes as we travel this road to see those who are coming to you, who you are drawing to yourself. Give us the conviction to get out of our comfort zone, to not just be a friend, but to be a friend who loves them so much that we're willing to communicate the gospel, that we're willing to tell of the work of your son, Jesus. Father, we ask you, knowing that only you could do this, we ask you to grant faith to those who hear. Father, to our coworkers and our, our family members, to our friends, will you draw them to yourself and grant them faith to respond to the saving grace of your son, Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here, I pray that you would open up their hearts to receive that good news. We ask this for your glory and your glory alone in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.